Many people want to give their money away to good charities, but how can you maximize the actual good you accomplish for each dollar you give? Uh, well, GiveWell does in-depth research to identify a short list of exceptional charities that do just that. GiveWell's top recommended charities are evidence-backed, and they help the poorest, neediest people in the world. Visit www.givewell.org to make your charitable donations go further. I thought you were Sarah. That was really disappointing. I'm usually not disappointed to see you, but in this case. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, joining me today is, is Ezra Klein. Hello. Sarah Cliff is, is tragically not with us, uh, but we've got a great show for you. Uh, we're going to be focusing in on, on tax reform especially. Uh, but first, I, I do want to tell you about a couple cool things that are coming up. One is that we're going to be doing a, a kind of year-end Q&A episode. Uh, we want to hear what you guys are interested in, answer your questions. Uh, so if you're interested in, in participating, go to The Weeds Facebook group, uh, leave your questions there. We're going to look through them and decide which ones we pick up. Uh, I think it's going to be fun. I think there's probably going to be more Q&A episodes uh, in the long run, uh, but we're kicking it off with the first one. So so go to the Facebook group for that. Even bigger news, or at least news that is more centered on me personally, is that we are launching a Weeds newsletter. It's going to be a daily email newsletter for people who love this show, people who love policy. Uh, I am writing it. Uh, go to vox.com slash weeds and you can sign up there. Uh, I sent out my, my first edition on Monday. Uh, I'm having a lot of fun writing it. I'm hoping that that all kinds of listeners to the show will subscribe and will forward it to everyone and force everyone to subscribe and, and the world will be an amazing, an amazing place. Um, speaking of amazing, uh, Republicans are, are pushing this, this tax bill. And I don't know, Ezra, uh, it seems like you have some doubts about it. So I, I've been doing a lot of reporting on the, the tax bill in the past couple of days, and I've really been struck by how many new problems, some of them related to taxes and some of them not related to taxes, it creates. So as a way of zooming out on this, whenever you're looking at a new piece of legislation, you have the question of what problems does it solve? What does it do if it works? And then what problems does it create, right? Legislation has trade-offs. Sometimes you got to spend a bunch of money or raise taxes. There are problems of implementation. There are unintended consequences. And so you're, you're always in this cost-benefit analysis of is the problem of the bill you're looking at worth the benefit of the bill you're looking at? What is really striking to me now having dug into the Republican bill is that its main thing it is doing, that the main benefit, which is really, if you talk to Republican tax experts, this idea that it will induce corporations to invest more here and move plants and profits here, it's maybe true. Uh, and there should be some benefit from that. But actually, a lot of it is speculative, particularly when you take into account what it is likely to do on the, on the other sides. Meanwhile, it creates at least five pretty big new problems. Some of them are about tax policy, some of them are not. But I thought it'd be a good thing today to go through these new problems that if we pass the tax bill, we know we are going to have to deal with in the, say, 10 years coming out. And we're talking, it. we should say, specifically the, the Senate Republican The tax Senate bill. Republican bill the, is really the, where the, we're looking. The House bill is similar, basically identical in its objectives, mm -hmm. but somewhat 
different in terms of the the trade-offs that it makes for yes, it. Yes, although creates most of, well, not all of these problems, but yeah. we're, we are talking about the Senate bill here. Also, the Senate bill is expected to be the bill that if this goes forward is really the, the yeah, vehicle the, the, that, the, that it the moves Senate's on. The Senate's chosen trade-offs are, are really the ones the party has taken. Right, and, because, and that's true because only the Senate bill, at least in theory, can pass through reconciliation. Right. So... Um, but let's go through. So there are five here that I want to talk about. I'll, I'll run through them real quick, and then we'll go through them in a bit more detail. One is it creates a bunch of new debt. Um, another is it repeals the individual mandate in Obamacare, creating a bunch of new healthcare problems. Another is it creates a new tax cliff coming on down the road, so a ton of uncertainty in the U.S. tax code going forward. Another is it it creates the biggest tax fraud loopholes you can possibly imagine. Uh, and then a fifth is a lot of inequality. But but why don't we begin on on the deficit? What, Matt, would you say is the the sort of way to think about how much of this is paid for and how much is not? Yeah. So, I mean, what happened was, was that in an earlier phase of this process, Republicans had a negotiation amongst themselves between the people who were the more gung-ho tax cutters and the people who were the more deficit hawkish people. And what they came to an agreement on was they would add $1.5 trillion to the deficit within the 10-year scoring window. So that's a lot. It's, it's not an insane amount, but it is big. Um, for example, it is bigger than the Obama stimulus bill, right? So Every Republican. I mean, I think we already knew that every single Republican. But wait, that's actually amazing, right? Just, right. just stop there. It is bigger, just the amount it adds to the deficit. Right. Not the size of the bill, which is over $2 trillion. Right. Just the amount of it adds to the deficit is bigger than the stimulus b- b- Bigger than the stimulus. Um, obviously, Affordable Care Act was designed to be deficit neutral. So, you know— if you were confused about this somehow, like Republicans who were complaining about Obama adding too much debt were bullshitting, right? That like yes. Bob, Bob Corker, who was on the deficit hawkish side and who was responsible for limiting it to, quote unquote, only $1.5 trillion, like even he was basically full of shit on this. <laughs> and, then, and then other people are, are more. So it's a, it's a lot of debt. I would say – it's not like a crippling sum of debt. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at the economic situation in the United States, we, we can borrow more money. Interest rates are no longer uh, on the floor the way they once were, but but they are low. If you were doing something worthwhile, it's okay. But uh, there's a big question as to whether $1.5 trillion is so to speak, the the real number here. Because a, a lot of the mechanics of the legislation are designed to hit that target. But the people who wrote the bill are not the people who sort of picked the $1.5 trillion target. You know, so there's a there's a question of we're adding a lot of debt, but not a not a crazy amount. But then there's a question of is there really going to be more debt? And some of that connects to the tax uh, tax cliff issues, some of it connects to the loophole type stuff that that you were talking about. And some of it I think has to do with the uh, dynamic response of other actors to the revenue. Yeah, so raiser. I want to I want to jump in on this point. So there are two things that I think are really worth pointing out about deficit. We often talk about deficit in the American political conversation as some kind of moral ill, right? Debt has developed this moral language, like debt is bad, right? You should feel bad if you are in debt, and, and I don't think that's the right way to think about it. I think the reason the debt that this package adds is problematic is twofold. One is that you often hear Republicans talk about the growth this tax plan will will add to, to, to the American economy. If you look at how tax plans get modeled, and if you look at what the people who really do this say, you cannot possibly know what a tax plan will do, a deficit-financed one, until you know how it is paid for. Right. 
Um, because how it is paid for, like, let's say you just raise a bunch of taxes later, but you've added a bunch of interest on the debt. Now you have a tax plan that will add negative growth to your economy. Let's say you pay for it later by cutting really, really important investment spending, right? R&D, things like that. Now infrastructure. Now you have a tax plan that will reduce growth from the economy. The tax plans that add growth are tend to be revenue neutral, can often be revenue positive. Uh, I was talking to Alan Biard, who's at the American Enterprise Institute. He's a very, very well-respected um, right-of-center tax expert. And he was telling me that he, he had done this big project with, with a co-author in 2009, where they basically looked at tons of these different bills um, that, that had passed in, in, in different places, and they ran it through like a big tax model. And he found that if you were deficit financing, these tax cuts had no statistically significant effect on growth. Like that, that was that. Um, so he, he will be the first to tell you and, and, and has told me, this is a really big problem in the bill, that this bill would make sense except for right? Or at least the corporate side of this bill, he thinks, would make sense except for the deficit financing, because the deficit financing, at least as far as we can tell now, is likely to wipe out the growth impact. So that's also, by the way, why that's why one thing, other thing you get in here is this weird Republican thing where they say this bill's economic growth will help the bill pay for itself, which would be more true if it were not deficit financed, right? Like economic growth does help the bill bring in more revenues and um, a static analysis would show, but but the deficit financing undercuts that. The other thing that I want to mention, particularly within a, a Republican context here, is that deficit financing suggests that we also don't know the true distribution of the bill. So you see a lot of things going around right now, like from the Tax Policy Center or the Tax Foundation or others saying, okay, the bill will give this much to the, the middle class, this much to people making, you know, in the top 1%, this much to the bottom 10%. All of those are basically wrong in terms of the overall long-term impact of the bill because we don't know how the bill gets paid for, which it eventually presumably has to, um, or at least certainly Republicans, Democrats believe it It certainly has to. That is a mainstream view in American life, that eventually you, you, you pay down your debts. Um, and if you do that from spending cuts, for instance, which will certainly be the Republican idea on this, well, if you look at what the federal government spends on, with the exception of military services, it tends to be pretty progressive. I mean, the people who rely on federal spending are bias towards the lower ends of the income scale. The, I, I've said this before and others have, but the federal government is basically a massive insurance provider with a standing army. So are you going to be cutting Medicaid? Are you going to be cutting Medicare? Are you going to be cutting food stamps? Like, what are you cutting? And assuming you're cutting the things that, say, the Brian budget wants you to cut, you are taking a plan that is already regressive and making it much, much, much more regressive. So problem number one, the plan adds, let's just say, $1.5 trillion onto the debt over 10 years leaves that for future generations to figure out how to pay for. And also because of that, everything is being said about how much growth the plan is going to add to the economy and what its distributional impact is, is we can't say it. Like there's this huge question mark in those Yeah, in those and, and so like Ke Kevin Hassett's write-up for the Council of Economic Advisors about the growth benefits of a corporate tax cut, he's mostly referencing studies that assume that you are, in a sort of modeling exercise, you will assume that you're replacing the corporate income tax with either a value-added tax, mm -hmm. discussed previously in the weeds, a lump sum per capita tax, which nobody does, but is um, convenient for modeling purposes or some kind of unspecified spending cut, right? And, and when the uh, Bush administration 
produced uh, internal Treasury dynamic scoring of Bush's tax plans. What they came up with was that, you know, these Bush tax cuts will have a large pro-growth effect if we pay for them by cutting Social Security and Medicare. So Republicans are not standing by any of those things, but to generate the growth that they're talking about, you have to come back around. And what all these different possible pay-fors have in common is it's you make poor people pay. Right. And one thing I think is interesting here, it goes to your point about how other countries do this, because there's a lot of pointing at other countries. It's a pretty interesting, very fast tax policy. Twitter has really become like a like a good thing in my life. It's pretty it's pretty interesting. And Tyler Cowen, the, the economist from George Mason University, was on there the other day and he said, well, look at what Sweden did. They had a massive corporate tax cut a couple of years ago. And now they're having another massive corporate tax cut. So clearly, you know, here's a country we think of as quite progressive um, and and has clearly decided that the cutting its corporate tax rate to well below where America is, uh, is a good thing. And then Jason Furman, who used to be President Obama's chief economist, came back and said, yeah, that's true, but they are doing that by paying for it. They're moving what was the money they're making from the corporate taxes into what's basically their value-added tax. And they're doing that in a country that's a 1% debt to GDP surplus and, and and very, very low standing debt. So what you see in other countries is an idea that, yeah, corporate tax cuts can be good, um, but you pay for them, right? You 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 create that certainty in the in 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 what's happening fiscally. Uh, we are not doing that. One thing we are doing, at least in the Senate bill, is using <laughs> the tax plan to get rid of the Affordable Care Act's individual mandate. Right. Which causes a ton of just completely non-tax-related problems. Right. So, you know, this is an idea that initially Republicans had not wanted to broach because— It's dumb. Well, <laughs> but that's not the reason why that they didn't want to That is true. That is not the reason. I mean, Paul, Paul Ryan talked about this, expressing a, to get his members to go with his bill, which doesn't do this. He was like, look, we already passed an Obamacare repeal bill, and then it died in the Senate, so I didn't want to put that stuff in the bill again because I didn't want the Senate to not pass it. But, like, we are all for repealing the Affordable Care Act in the House of Representatives. So then in the Senate, uh, Tom Cotton floated on Twitter, and this got to the president's tweets, and then eventually to Orrin Hatch, that the individual mandate by order of the U.S. Supreme Court is a tax, right? And you normally think of taxes as raising revenue, but the impact of the individual mandate is to help induce more people to sign up for federally subsidized health insurance. So if you, quote unquote, cut the tax of the Obamacare mandate, you reduce federal spending by several hundred billion dollars, and you then improve your your math in terms of the deficit numbers, right? So like it's a tax cut that's actually a spending cut. So it helps offset the cost of, of the corporate tax. Um, this means, you know, fewer people will have health insurance. I think the canonical CBO number is that it's 13 million. Yeah. I, I do think in defense of Republicans, I, I think there's reason to believe that that is a, a high-end estimate. I, I agree. With and that, that it will be fewer people than that. Um, the flip side, though, is that if not as many people lose insurance as the CBO thinks, this also doesn't save as much money as the CBO thinks. So again, I mean, this is this is part of the deficit question, right? I mean, the 1.5 trillion, it's a lot, but but I think this will add more to the deficit than that because what definitely happens when you repeal the mandate 
is that healthier and wealthier and younger people will tend to drop out of the insurance pool. And then that raises premiums that are charged for everybody else. And then the question becomes, how much on one sort of fork in the road, you get a lot of death spiraling because premiums are going up, even more people drop out, the remaining pool gets even sicker, um, and, and it goes down and down and down you go. The other fork in the road is that you don't have that much death spiraling, that a really large share of the people on the exchanges already are very heavily subsidized patients, and that because they are so subsidized, they are not going to be that sensitive to the premium increases that are unleashed by the sort of first wave of dropouts. Uh, But if that's true, right, if instead of 13 million people losing insurance, it's really only like 5 million people, which is still a lot, uh, then the deficit impact here is going to wind up being a lot less. Than right, I think they're prize. estimating something in the range of 300-some billion. Right. And so if it goes down to 75 billion. Right. It, it, it's because one reason it would go is it's not just that 5 million is fewer people than 13 million, but it's because premiums will definitely go up a lot, mm-hmm. right? And so the question that we're sort of modelers are debating is when premiums go up a lot, are people going to decline to pay of what that premium costs with the federal government picking up the other 80%? Or are they going to still do it, right? So if you have a lot of loss of insurance, federal spending goes down a lot because the, the subsidies go down a lot. But if people just sort of stick with it and rough it out, then even though you're covering many fewer people, you're paying out way more in subsidies. And this is similar to the, um, the cost-sharing reductions issue, where it's like making the risk pool worse does not save much, if any, money unless you like totally gut health insurance provision in the United States. So, I mean, to your point, just the framing, like it's not clear to me what is going to happen here, but it's like it's problems on all sides and not problems that like Mitch McConnell or Donald Trump have solutions for. Yeah, that and even putting aside how it interacts in this sort of delicate way with the rest of the tax plan debate, it's just a bad idea. It's just destabilizing insurance markets all across the country for no good reason. I mean, it's not a good way to raise money, as you're pointing out. It's not a good thing to do to the Affordable Care Act. It is not any Republican's view that what would be a good health care plan is the Affordable Care Act, but without the individual mandate. Like that, that is also not a proposal that Republicans believe in. I know it relates to skinny repeal, but if you remember when Republicans were doing skinny repeal, the only way they were going to allow it to pass is if they promised in the Senate and then the House that they would not actually let it pass into law. It was just going to be a vehicle to go to conference. So now they're going to do it and pass it into law. Um, and just blow up insurance markets. And why are they going to do it? It makes tax reform maybe a little bit easier. It's a symbolic and and in reality, actual way to, to attack Obamacare. Um, the individual mandate is unpopular, but it's going to create a huge set of new policy problems in the insurance markets that Republicans are going to correctly be blamed for. And by the way, they have now done the thing they were doing during the Affordable Care Act that got them in the most rhetorical trouble, which is cutting health insurance for poor people in order to finance a tax cut for rich people. Like, it is just such a bad idea. And, and by the way, compared to a lot of the things about corporate corporations deciding to locate factories in America because they got a slightly better tax rate or um, growth from a, a tax bill that we don't know how we're going to pay for it, this is real. 
Right. Like we know this will happen, right? This is like a, a surefire 100% you're going to destabilize insurance markets. So you've got these kind of prospective long-term economic benefits, maybe, but maybe not, versus, uh, among other things, this extremely bad piece of healthcare policy tucked into the bill that also Republicans have no plan for solving. There's been talk of passing the, the Murray Alexander uh, insurance market stabilization package. That is a stabilization package that is meant to be built on top of the individual mandate. Right. Um, it's supposed to undo destabilizing that the Trump administration right. did. And some other problems in the sure. bill, to be fair. But if you just take it, <laughs> I mean, one way to just think about this, right, is like if you put 20% of stabilization back into the market with Marie Alexander, but you take out 50% of stabilization by ripping out the individual mandate, you have ended with like a net loss of stability in your insurance markets, which is what we're doing. Um, one, one To get a quick net gain of advertising revenue for the weeds, let's take a quick break here. It's the holidays. You know, it's a, it's a busy time of year. Uh, you've got presents to buy. You've got stuff you got to mail. Uh, but you've also got a, a lot of travel in your schedule, a lot of days off at the post office. It's hard to find the time to get into the post office to do the mailing that you need to do. And that's where Stamps.com is a great solution because they let you get postage on your own schedule at your own desk in your own home or office. Uh, they bring you all the services of a U.S. Postal Service office, uh, but right to your fingertips. You can buy and print official postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer, then the mailman picks it up. Uh, Stamps.com makes it easy. They'll send you a digital scale that automatically calculates exact postage. Stamps.com will even help you decide the best class of mail every time. You print postage any day, any time. And the best thing is Stamps.com is always open. Any time of day, any day of the week, any day of the year. It's incredibly simple, incredibly convenient. I use Stamps.com whenever I need postage because there's really nothing easier than firing up your web browser printing it out. Right now, you you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale with no long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, type in Weeds, that's Stamps.com, enter Weeds. All right. Those problems sound pretty bad, Ezra, but but like, are there any more problems? There are more problems. I'm so glad you asked, Matt. So in the Senate bill, one of the, the fun parts about it is that the corporate tax cuts are permanent, but the individual tax cuts are not permanent. Um, among other things, one of the things people talk about in taxes is that you want long-term permanence so that both individuals and corporations can make long-term decisions about how to uh, 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 arrange their economic lives. This does not offer that, but it also creates this just huge gaping cliff in American tax policy, which we've had before, but wasn't a good idea, I wouldn't say. Right. Well, and this is a particularly sort of weird thing. So they had to make some calculations about like how to make this work, right? How to work the $1.5 trillion, how to work their profound desire for a big tax cut for business owners, how to work a big estate tax cut, but also how to make it politically viable, right? Because what you could have done was just said, look, we're going to do a $1.5 trillion tax cut for business owners and heirs. Um, and, you know, good luck. Uh, but they didn't want to do that. They they ran on cutting taxes for the middle class, even though they don't believe in that as a 
policy. So they had to put that in the legislation. Then they had too much tax cuts, so something had to expire. So the decision that they made was that the corporate tax cuts are the unpopular part, so they should make that permanent. And the middle-class tax cuts are the popular part, so they should make it temporary. So now, if any backbench members get a little queasy looking at these charts where you're, like, raising taxes on 60% of the population, they can say, no, 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 don't don't, don't worry about that, Ron. Um, we're clearly... Democrats also favor middle-class tax cuts. We're just going to get those middle-class tax cuts extended. And frankly, if Democrats come out against extending the middle-class tax cuts, we'll run against them, we'll beat them, and then we'll extend it. And who knows, we could maybe even, you know, do even more corporate tax cuts. So that's what they're saying to one side of the caucus. But then the one point, and they're saying, you know, it was just an arbitrary $1.5 trillion target, blah, blah, blah. But while there's something arbitrary about the $1.5 trillion target, It's an arbitrary target that they picked for themselves because some of the members of their caucus believed in it. They they thought it would be dangerous to borrow more than that. So they're going around and saying to more deficit-minded people, no, 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 don't worry. Like, this is affordable. So it's a real, you know, it's it's just a sort of time bomb. I want to just run out the logic of what you're saying. If they do what they're saying to the other side of the caucus, then what they're really saying is that the deficit-financed cost of these tax cuts is much, 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 much long-term uh, right. higher. Right. M- much long-term higher than Wait, it is. I'm a, a good writer. Fully implemented. Speaker, talker. Good. Fully implemented. Because the other thing they do is they phase in the corporate tax cuts, I think on a, like a year or two delay. But fully implemented fully extended version of this is way more than a $1.5 trillion, right? It's like, it's over three, I think, um, depending on exactly how you look at it and and what you think is going to happen with the inflation rate. And then you're into a terrain where I I try to be on the relaxed side about about debts and deficits. Uh, But if you really went that far, I think the odds are good that you would have a problem. And then, of course, another thing they're saying to a third faction of the party is, well, don't worry if this causes like a fiscal crisis six, seven years out, because we know, right, that like deficit hawk community in Washington is full of morons. And so whenever Democrats are in office, they insist that there should be balanced deficit reduction that involves spending cuts and tax increases. Then when Republicans are in Washington, we just cut taxes. So don't worry, right? Like, it's good if there's a debt crisis during Elizabeth Warren's administration, because that's going to mean she's going to have to cut Social Security benefits or, or something like that. And all of these lines, like, don't worry about the middle class, they all sort of make sense, but like, they can't all be right. You know what I mean? They've just they've decided that they want this corporate tax cut. And then depending on what your concern is about the bill, uh, leadership will paint some different picture for you about how the future will rise. And it just like it means there's a serious problem, right? Like the Congress of the year 2025 will be consumed with how to address the looming giant tax increase on the middle class, and it's going to be uh, hard to know exactly what they're going to do about it. I think I think people who are expressing, like, analytic certainty about what it is that will occur in 2025 are fooling themselves, like something will happen, and there's no guarantee. And by the way, putting even aside what we did to fix that, like, imagine that in 2025 or 2026 or 2023 or whatever it might be, 
we ha- just have a big recession. Right. Like just a big recession. When there is a recession, what you need ideally is fiscal firepower to fight it. And, and not just like in a, in a conceptual way, like you really do need that. It, it, particularly if you're in a space where the interest rates are a little bit higher than they are now, what you want is to be able to, to have enough money in the bank that you're not creating a massive debt problem by whatever it is, giving a stimulative tax cut at that point or you know making Medicaid bigger or food stamps or whatever it is that you need to do. And this will put us in a very bad position. Uh, we already saw this play out. We saw this play out during the, the 2009 recession. And now we're getting right back into it. We're in a period of economic growth. This is not when you want to do massive deficit spending. It's actually when you want to make your debt and deficit picture a little bit better so you have firepower if you need it down the road. So it isn't just that this will create political problems down the road. It could very well create very serious economic problems down the road that will make the next recession quite a bit worse. Speaking of things that will make things worse, number four, (laughs) this bill creates at least two or three of just the biggest, craziest loopholes you can possibly imagine. Daniel Shaviro, who is a tax expert, calls it the Tax Arbitrage Act of 2018 because it will allow for so much crazy tax arbitrage in it. Um, The the big one here is is pass-throughs, which are... I've been talking to a lot of Republican tax experts. One thing I will tell you is zero of them will defend this provision. Like no Republican tax experts I am aware of will explain that the pass-through thing is a good idea. Do you want to just give a quick overview of the pass-through problem? Yeah. So, I mean, it's hard to even know how this got into the political system as as a problem exactly. Um, But the way taxes work in America is if you have a company – it might pay corporate income tax. Uh, but if you don't want to pay corporate income tax and your company doesn't have a lot of owners, uh, you can you can just not pay corporate income tax. Uh, if, so law firms uh, generally don't. Um, it's true that small businesses don't, but the Trump organization doesn't. I believe that Coke Industries doesn't. And, and the way this works is you just say, look, we're going to take the owners of the business and we're just going to divide up the business's profits, and we're going to count that as income for each of the business owners. So the the income, so to speak, passes through the sort of veil of the corporate entity and is taxed at the individual level. So that, as it exists, is a tax benefit, right? Like you pay less in taxes if you own a business and are taxed as a pass-through entity than you would if the business paid corporate income tax, then kicked money out to you in the form of dividends, and then you paid taxes as an individual, right? So, like, pass-throughs, it just, it exists as a tax benefit. I would say that the uh, economic modeling justification for that is non-existent. Uh, The reason that we do it is that it would be very cumbersome. It would be annoying for a genuine mom-and-pop business to have to file corporate-level taxation. And then as an abusive add-on, giant multi-million dollar businesses are allowed to structure themselves as if it's like Mrs. Kim's dry-cleaning shop down the road. And it's just like, it's a loophole that should not exist, in my opinion. But I I think legitimately, like just big. Uh, this is what uh, what what you know. Democrats I've spoken to, tax experts say, is that like you know, for just large pass through entities, you shouldn't be allowed to be a pass through entity. Years ago, though, the like small business lobby got their claws into Republican members of Congress, and they got them saying that it would be unfair to do a corporate tax cut that wasn't paired with some kind of relief for wealthy owners of pass-through entities. 
I don't understand what would be unfair about that, right? Like they probably given that there are individual tax cuts on this anyway, right? But I mean, the idea is that right now they are taxed more lightly than other people, and that if you reduced the extent to which they are taxed more likely, that would somehow be unfair to them. I don't know what would be unfair about it, but this idea, it kicked around congressional Republicans for years. Then their presidential nominee became Donald Trump, a man who just personally owns uh, large, very lucrative pass-through entities. So this, like, random concern bubbled up to, like, the top of the policy agenda because Donald Trump would really like Donald Trump's taxes to be cut. And there's no there's no reason for this. Like one searches in vain through the the tax policy literature for any reason to say that it's important to give an extra tax benefit based on your business. And they and you can tell but, there's no justification because they keep calling it small businesses, but the size of the business is not relevant. But the <laughs> Well, that's true for a lot of things in this bill. But but the thing that this does is it creates this huge, 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 unbelievably huge incentive to structure yourself not as a corporate entity, but as a pass-through, right? And so Republicans are trying to like put in guardrails and things like that to say, oh no, <laughs> they're basically putting in little provisions in this being like, if you're not supposed to use this, you shouldn't use it. Yeah. But Republicans, I think, as a general point, do not have a lot of confidence in the Internal Revenue Service. They don't think that they want a lot of IRS agents up in your business. They don't think IRS agents are good at being up in your business. But for this thing to not become a multi-trillion dollar loophole, you would need the IRS to be like unbelievably effective at doing an almost a metaphysical form of tax enforcement where they decide like, are you a proper pass through or are you not? And like, what are you doing? And, you know, is your, is the service you provide personally uh, labor or is it like somebody's paying you for your capital? It gets very, very weird very quickly. But the point is, it is, it opens up even more than we have now. And we have somewhat of this now, a gigantic fucking tax loophole, like something that it is like a full employment act for tax accountants. Well, and also, I don't want to laugh this off. I mean, because we have I, seen— I wasn't no, 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 no. No, I mean, the thing about the, the, the tax enforcement, because Republicans have really worked over the decades. You could imagine a universe, right? A political party that was animated by strong belief in optimal taxation theory and the evils of high marginal tax rates, right? A, a party that, that genuinely believed in that would be— monstrous about tax enforcement, mm -hmm. right? Because the more rigorously you enforce the tax code, the lower you can make the marginal rates, right? Like loopholes and evasion and abuse don't don't act on the margin. Um, the Republican Party has very forcefully acted in the opposite way, right? Like the hardest thing to get them to agree to in any kind of budget negotiation is to fund IRS agents to conduct audits of wealthy people to get, like, lawyers and, and things like that. And that's how, over the years, both, like, things like the the sort of infamous uh, carried interest loophole came into place because Republicans are not into tax enforcement. But also, you probably heard last year, right, a, a lot of stories about the Trump Foundation and the seemingly illegal shenanigans that it got up to. And the reason Trump got caught in those shenanigans is that he ran for president. So a bunch of uh, journalists and, and uh, ultimately David Farenthold at The Washington Post, like bird dogged on various like aspects of Trump's life. 
But if he hadn't run for president, he could have kept getting away with this abuse of nonprofit law mm-hmm. indefinitely because the IRS has not been provided with the, like, army of investigators and attorneys. Um, Republicans, they, they, they love law enforcement. They love border security. And, like, they don't like tax enforcement. But to make their theory of how taxes should work, you really need to enforce tax law rigorously. And with this, they are prying another big issue open where if we pretend to be naive about it, we can be like, aha, they're going to make these guardrails work. But tax enforcement is lax in the United States because the Republican Party wants it to be lax. The reality is that it's not just that these things won't be enforced strictly. They will be enforced as poorly as you can possibly imagine, right? Like there's so there, and there are they, more of them, by the way. Right. That's something I just want to say to you, because the pastor one is getting a lot of uh, play. But there's another one that isn't even something the IRS would be enforcing against. It's just like a, a crazy thing they're doing. So the Republican tax plan allows for full expensing for, for businesses. So you're, you're a business, you buy whatever, a computer, um, and you can fully expense the cost of that computer. So you're paying really no taxes on that computer. But it also keeps the deductibility of, of interest. So now you get into a situation where you borrow money to buy a computer and you expense a computer and you are now paying a negative tax rate on the thing you just bought. Um, the government is actually subsidizing capital investments, right? which just nobody thinks is a good idea. Well, also, to be clear, I mean, in that scenario, you know, capital investments, uh, I don't know. You know, I mean, it's it's it's, it's not a great tax policy, uh, but if you look at like who really uses a lot of debt finance, right? Right, yes. It's not necessarily companies that are investing in tangible physical capital. It's often banks, right, will borrow money in order to make purely financial plays. You know, they will buy up a tranche of bonds Mm -hmm. uh, based on bonds that they themselves issued, right? Of course, private equity companies, this is like the essence of of how you go. You see a a, a restaurant chain, right, that um, owns not only brand equity, but owns land and buildings and stuff that it's on. And you say, okay, it would be more profitable to issue tons and tons of junk bonds by this company and have it be a highly leveraged entity, right? Rather than a company that has a big net asset position in owning restaurants, it would be deeply, deeply, deeply in debt and would have this ongoing stream of cash. Uh, Because you could deduct the interest, right, it would be highly favorable from a tax dynamic for sort of every ongoing business entity in America to be carrying as much debt as possible, which creates enormous amounts of economic fragility in the case of a recession, right? Because you could go from a situation where your unleveraged restaurant chain might lose money in an economic downturn, might have to lay off some people, and then would just kind of bounce back the next year. But your highly leveraged one, well, they're collecting this tax benefit during the good years. In a bad year, they're not going to be able to pay their bills. They're going to go bankrupt. The whole thing may catastrophically fail. Of course, when banks catastrophically fail in this way, we have, you know, cascading waves of failure. So you're building potentially a much, much more fragile macroeconomy Um Really for no reason. Finally, we've just got an, an inequality problem in this country. We have uh, uh, an economy where a tremendous amount of the gains of growth now go to the top 1%. And 
this is something that, that sometimes you will even hear Republicans lament. Uh, if you listen to a lot of the ways in which people justified, like, why was it that the white working class would vote so heavily for Donald Trump? If they decided it couldn't have anything to do with racial and cultural resentment, it often came down to things that sounded a lot like inequality. Like they notice that like rich people in these cities are getting all the gains while they're, you know, don't have jobs and are getting like buffeted by opioids. And 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 it's true, right? We do have terrible economic inequality. We do have a lot of social stratification coming in part from that inequality. Um, social mobility is in part a function of inequality. If you have very large spaces between the rungs of the ladder, it's harder to climb up the ladder. And this bill just makes it a lot worse. So we got some new tax policy center numbers. And this is taking the bill seriously on its own terms, looking, uh, assuming that the things that are set to expire, expire, and, and the things that don't, don't. And you can debate assumptions in this bill, uh, in this stuff, but I think this is a pretty good median set of estimates. And so they say that by 2027, uh, the top 0.1% will have an after-tax change of $208,000. They will be paying, they will get $208,000 more after taxes. Top 1%, $32,000. The middle quintile, uh, $50. And the lowest quintile will be paying $10 more. And then if you like go lower and look at like how, what percentage of households are helped and not helped, uh, most households uh, beneath the top 10% are going to end up paying higher taxes. If you look at like the middle quintile, right, the thing that we would think of most clearly as as a middle class, 65.6% of tax units end up with a tax increase in 2027. Meanwhile, at the top 1%, it's 16.8% of tax units and at the top 0.1%, it's only 1.8% of tax units. So, you're you're looking at a tax bill here that is going to take the inequality problem we have in the country currently and supercharge it. Right. And and here, I mean, I think just because this problem is, is so blatant, but I think it, it sums up the whole question of, you know, big changes have downsides. They have trade-offs. They, they raise problems. And the question is, is like, why do you undergo all these problems, right? And the, the overriding message of, of all of these things is, is a belief, not just a belief that there is some benefit to a lower corporate tax rate. Because you'll see that, right? I, I see a lot of people, uh, right-of-center commentators, trying to be kind of like uh, smarter smarter than the game and being like, you know, liberals are maybe downplaying some of the virtues of this. But to undertake a piece of legislation that is so problematic as this indicates that you believe you are solving an emergency, right? Like, the reason Democrats put the Affordable Care Act through is that it is really bad that many Americans are, are uninsured, right? And and the impetus behind, like, Medicare for all is that, again, a belief that, like, there is a crisis in America. And so it requires a drastic solution that creates a lot of problems because it's solving a big problem. The proposition here is that there is a enormous crisis, right? Like, one of the top one to three biggest problems in America is that being the shareholder in a profitable American corporation is not lucrative enough, right? I mean, I mean, the, the, the proposition is just that, like, it might be, like, a little bit better, but that, like, this would, in a fundamental way, you could go home, your career in politics, and say, you know what? We lost some— 
but damn it, like we brought this home. We really, we really tackled the problem that like wealthy shareholders were not earning a sufficient return. And I just don't see any justification for that because we have had a generation long increase in inequality, as we've been seeing, right? There's no, there's no like hair on fire, like nobody's making any money here. And it's not, I mean, you can, it can sound like a crazy thing, but it's legitimately true that if you we were looking at 1979, that taking inflation into account, there had been like no gain in owning the stock market for 15 years, right? And you could say, you know, well, like who's going to cry for these rich shareholders? But the fact is, is that like, if you can't make money investing in stuff, like you're going to have a problem as a society and as an economy. But people have been making money investing in stuff. Like it's just it's just not true that like there's been no no profitability in like founding a successful company, right? Yeah. Uh, one odd thing about this bill is how easy it would be to write a better one. Like it would not be hard. What you would do is you would take the corporate tax side of this bill, you would leave it more or less as is, but you'd make the rate 25%. 25% is rate the National Business Roundtable asked for. Right. So the business lobby, when they came to Washington and they were like, here is what we want from you. Here is our like our, our opening bid. They said 25%, not 20, which right. is what's in the bill now. Uh, Mitt Romney said 25%, not 20. It's just Donald Trump randomly said 20 on the campaign trail. So now we're at 20. But that... There's no reason for it. It just costs a bunch of money. So you do 25%, which would still be a very big corporate tax cut from 35. It would put us, you know, in the sort of ranks of other developed countries. It, it would more or less solve the, the problem we have where we have an excess business tax rate compared to our competitors. So you do that. You would just not have the individual tax side of this at all in the way it's constructed. You would not have the crazy pass-through thing at all. Um, what you would have is a big increase and refundability for the child tax credit. Maybe you'd have an increase and doubling of the earned income tax credit, like possibly for childless adults, which is something that even Paul Ryan has said he supports. So now you have a bill that is doing, you know, what you need to do on the corporate side, but also doing a lot more for the poorest in, in America. And then you would pay for it by doing some of the base broadening, even maybe some of the same base broadening they have in the bill now. If they want to screw over state and local deductions and, you know, mortgage interest deductions for rich people, I, I'm honestly, it doesn't bother me all that much. And you would get more growth out of, that, out of that bill, and you'd be solving a more clear problem. But also, and I think this is important, by taking the bill and taking the gains of the corporate income tax growth that you're trying to get and funneling it into a more progressive income tax code, you would also be making sure you distribute the gains you're getting from this growth. Because this is one of these things. You could actually imagine a world where a bill like this, quote unquote, works but the way it works is by giving rich shareholders a bunch of money back. And, and if we've seen nothing else in the past couple of years, it is that the mechanisms by which the, our economy shares the gains of economic growth are very broken. We have very high corporate profits, a very low labor share of those corporate profits. We have not seen the kind of wage gains we would expect or would have seen in another era from the kind of growth we, we have right now. You could do better. You could have something that is both pro-growth and pro-more progressive distribution if you wanted to. It's not mathematically hard. It's not technically hard. In fact, it'd be a lot less technically complex bill than the one they have now, but they just haven't done it. Um, because as far as you know, one problem they're solving is that 
they believe the rich don't have enough money and the tax code is too progressive. And so they're they're doing something to fix that. Yeah. And I, and I mean, I also think on some level it speaks to a lack of confidence, right? That uh, you you mentioned the, the Swedish case, which is interesting. It's an interesting political trajectory. And the, the previous uh, cabinet, a center-right cabinet, they enacted a smallish uh I mean, a meaningful, but a a, a smallish reduction in, in their corporate tax rate that was paid for. Uh, they did it a few years ago, and the consensus in Swedish circles is that it worked well. So now the new government that's in place, it's a center-left government, is doing it again, right? It's like a success is breeding success kind of thing. I am super skeptical. I think that, like, I don't think high corporate tax rates would help anything at all. I think that's probably just wrong. But I will acknowledge as a journalist that there's like a lot of good, there's economic models and good economists who, who think that I'm wrong. Um, but if you believed in these optimistic dynamic effects, right, like do the 25, do the 28 that Obama proposed, right? And then like show that I'm the asshole, right? Like as as the economy takes off and as, as wages rise and, and something like that. And particularly because... If the dynamic effects did kick in, right, the fiscal situation would come in way better than expected, and then it would be way easier to cut taxes, right? In the in the 90s, when growth turned out to be—you don't even have to have a causal attribution. It's just true that when growth turned out to be faster than people had expected, the budget situation turned out to be better than expected, and that meant that Bill Clinton and the Republican Congress could come together and agree to both— cut taxes more and also spend more money than they had been anticipating. So if like you personally are just a strong believer that a corporate income tax cut will set off a boom, like you should be willing to settle for less in order to make sure you get it done because then it's going to get done and then you could you could cut more taxes and, and do whatever. But I don't I I don't really think they believe it or even understand what these these models are even saying is going on. And I think that, like, the inclusion of the pass-through stuff is a real giveaway in that regard, that it's just a kind of, it's just a kind of looting that's happening. You know, like, they don't care if this policy is sustainable or if it works or if it has downsides or, you know, that President Bernie Sanders is going to now, like, pay for Medicare for All by repealing the Trump tax cuts. Um, they just, like, gonna kind of crack open the piggy bank. People are gonna grab as much money as they can. And, and what happens later, like, they don't care. And with that, let's just say that we care about you, the listener, and we care that we get as many listeners as possible. Uh, so hopefully uh, you are recommending this show to other people. Uh, you are spreading the word, spreading the weeds love. Uh, hopefully you're checking out our Facebook group. That's the place where you can ask questions for a Q&A episode. Check out Vox.com slash the weeds if you're interested in, in more weeds in your email inbox. Uh, it's amazing stuff. Um, if not, I don't know. I, I hope you'll keep listening. Uh, we're going to be we're going to be back with, with what's probably going to be more tax talk, although, uh, you know, news uh, news may intervene. Uh, so so thanks to everybody out there for, for listening. Thanks to uh, Peter Leonard, our engineer, and uh, we'll see you Friday. <laughs>